or last week as we continued through the book of Genesis, we saw a treaty that happened between Abraham and Abimelech. And before there could be peace between those two, they had to get rid of all the issues that needed to be dealt with. And in order to have total restoration, you have to have total forgiveness. The only way to do that is to lay all the things out on the table. You've got to get all the stuff, the pastors, all of that junk. You've got to get it behind you. And, and we, as people, as, as a church, and just people in general, we have a really bad habit of bringing up those things that have been previously forgiven and throwing them back at people's faces. And, and that causes real problems because... As Christians, when we forgive people, we're supposed to forgive them. And when we just throw stuff back at them, it, it can really hurt relationships. So we, we all do that. We hang on to some of those past hurts. But we, we have to be willing to give grace the way that we receive it. So last week we saw that blueprint of, of how to forgive completely and totally. And, and grudges and anger, those things are things, those are tools that the devil uses, they're openings that, that he has, that he gets in there and he goes, you know what, I can use this. You remember, do you remember when that person said that to you? And it had already been forgiven, but the devil uses those things against you. And, and it ruins relationships. So peace between people only comes through totality through totality of forgiveness, through totality of grace, and, and, and really grasping and holding on to that. So this week we're going to see that blueprint in action by God himself as, as we read the story of the offering of Isaac. We're, we're, at first we're going to see a test. We're going to see how, how does Abraham respond to this test from God. And then we're going to see God bringing a substitute. And this is really a great story that we see of the foreshadowing of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And we need to pay close attention to the symbolism as, as we read this. And then the, the chapter ends with some general, just some genealogy, some cleanup stuff that that we go through, and we'll, we'll touch on that briefly at the end. So if you would, let's stand. We're going to read the entirety of chapter 22 here, and then we will go through that. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which... I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, sat on his donkey, and two, uh, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took, a, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So he went, both, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where 
prepares the land for the burnt offering. Abraham said, God will provide for himself a land for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will multi surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also, has born, has born children to your brother Nahor. Uz the firstborn, Buzz the second, or his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jilpa, uh, Bethuel, Bethuel, father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rioma, bore Teba, Gahan, Tehash, and Paca. Amen. You may be seated. Lord, we just want to thank you again for your word, for the time that we have here. We ask that you bless it and that we have open hearts and minds to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first point is a test. It is broken into three parts for us uh, so that we can go through this. And it's forgiveness, faith, and follow-through. The first point that we're going to address here is forgiveness. We read last week about God's blueprint for forgiveness. Well, he shows us here that he follows that blueprint. What do I mean by that? Well, God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son. Is Isaac Abraham's only son? No. Remember, he had Ishmael through Hagar. Okay? So Ishmael was actually his firstborn son. But... God had forgiven that sin, and if you remember, God had said, I will take care of the boy. So he has eliminated that sin from, from Abraham's past. Now, this is one of those verses that atheists use to say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Um, and, and I use this to show that an atheist actually can't under, understand Scripture until they understand grace. This is a perfect example of how that works. The pride and adultery that led to the birth of Ishmael had been forgiven by God. Forgiven to the point where God said he would take care of the boy, 
God took complete responsibility for Ishmael and blotted Ishmael out of Abraham's life. He does not remind Abraham of his past sin. He does, he, it, that sin is forgiven in the eyes of God. To the point where he says repeatedly, your one and only son, Isaac. So, in the context of Scripture, when you look at this, you see, well, Ishmael is Isaac. Ishmael is Abraham's son. Well, so is Isaac. So, they're contradictory statements. If you just pick those two verses and you read them out of context, that's what you would come to, as most atheistic people would do. If you read them in context of the rest of the story, you understand why God says what he does. Next, we read about Abraham's faith. So, we've been talking about this because we've been going through the story of Abraham up until now, right? As we've been going through the book of Genesis. Aside from his faith in leaving Ur, which is where he was from, We've mostly seen from Abraham him acting out in his own strength, doing things out of fear, lying to get himself out of trouble, and now we're reading this story where, where God gives him a mission that's completely different. He says, go and sacrifice your one and only son. What does Abraham do in this situation? goes. He doesn't argue. He doesn't try and barter with God. He doesn't plead for the boy. He doesn't do anything. He just leaves and goes as God commands him. A son that he had waited decades for is here, and now God tells him to kill him. Most of us have trouble tithing, but the reality is this takes the first fruits thing to a whole other level. Okay? God tests Abraham's faith, and this is a really, really hard test. <clears throat> is this a test about sacrificing? No. Does God need a dead child in his life? No, he does not. Is this what, like, Richard Dawkins would say, where God's just an evil egomaniac and, and just wants people to laud attention over him? The sacrifice is not about God. <clears throat> anytime we make a sacrifice, anytime we make an offering, it's not because God needs it, it's because we do. We are the ones that hold on tightly to things that will trip us up in life. And the more that we hold on to them, the more that we struggle. All of us, I'm confident in saying this, all of us struggle with this in some degree. It, we, we may not idolize something, but there's some things that we sure as heck aren't going to let go of, right? Um, is in, you look at the story of the rich young ruler. His wealth was not what sustained him, but he thought it was. And as Christ gives him the offer of follow, you know, come follow me, he's like, no, 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 I can't give up that. Ironically, 
if you read through scripture, every single person that Jesus Christ said, come and follow me to, went and followed Christ except for him. Because he was so entrenched with the money that he had, he wasn't giving that up. And, and I think that as we look at sacrifice, that was the one thing Jesus told me to get rid of because that was the one thing he held on to more importantly than anything he had. Sacrificing is not about us. It, it, it's not about God. It's about us. God's asking us, you need to put down those things that are holding you back from loving me. Really, that's what it's all about. Faith is being able to let go and knowing that God's going to take care of you even when you let go of that thing that you hold so dear. In this case, it's what you love most. Abraham and Sarah had waited forever for this child. And I, I kind of joke in this story, but you notice that Abraham doesn't tell Sarah he's going to go do this. Think about had God gone to Sarah and asked her for the same thing. What do you think her response would have been? I, I highly doubt she would have loaded up two boys and some firewood and just headed off to the hills. We all respond differently to tests. And we all look at sacrifice or giving of ourselves differently. We all have different experiences in those areas. Um, I was talking with somebody the other night about gray areas. And I, I don't really believe that the Bible has them in, in the way that most churches use the term gray areas. God's very clear in that he expects our willingness to do as he commands and to have faith no matter what. That he is, is going to take care of things because his way is better than ours. He, he expects that. We have a way of ruining those things because we think our way is better. And that's just the human, that's the human element of everything. Our faith has to be willing to go, you know what? I'm going to put aside what I think is right and do what God says here. Um, people say that I'm insane because I have seven children. They'll say things like, how can you afford that? It's more crazy for me as a person to think that the God who says children are a blessing would make them a nightmare for me, financially. I never once thought about that. It never came to my mind that, that the God who says to be fruitful and multiply would say, well, I'm not going to provide for them. That's, it's, it's not the nature or character of God. So every single child, and this is, ask my wife, every single child we had came with financial blessings that came with that. Every time I am faithful, God rewards that. It, it's almost like there's a verse in the Bible that says something like that. Oh, guess what? I found one. <clears throat> Amazingly enough, look at, look at um, Luke 16, 10 through 12. It says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful 
in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what? In that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Remember, faith is being tested by God here. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Especially when he gives you that which is impossible. A child, when you're 90 years old and you're way past menopause. This is not a lesson on tithing. It's a lesson on sacrifice. And I've, trust me, I've seen a lot of pastors turn this into, you need to give more. That's not what this is about. That's not what this message is. God was asking for the one thing that Abraham cherished most. But God wanted Abraham and us to see that the thing he should cherish more than that thing is God. You guys remember the story of Job. Job was put through um, the same kind of test in a way. But Job went into that test with a very clear knowledge that everything that he had was from God. He literally said, you know, God gives, God takes away. Whatever, it's not, not, not mine to say. The lesson is that when we put money or things or people or whatever it is above God, are we truly focused on the right things? So Abraham responds to this in a way that we should all learn from. He follows through. He, he does it without question. He does it immediately. And the first thing in the morning, he gets up, he chops wood, packs up Isaac, two servants, and he heads off. Here are the things about tests from God. They aren't easy. And I'm sure like me, I, you guys have all failed these tests frequently. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. I want you guys to think about this. Abraham walks for three days. Three days of thinking. Could you imagine all the thoughts and things that went through his head? The ways that he could get out of this, the way that he could get around this, the way that he could work. Maybe I could, maybe I could do this, maybe I could, the, the plotting, the, the ways that he could do something else to make God happy. Was he angry at God for making him do this after God had given him this gift? Three days of excruciating thoughts. And that doesn't even count, like... What if Satan comes in and starts just planting little seeds of doubt in his head? I, I think we all struggle with these kinds of mental bouts. But I'm pretty sure none of us have been asked to sacrifice our child. Right? No? None of you? We're writing a check or giving up something important to you is one thing, but your, your child is a whole different monster here. And you look at those three days, it had to have been horribly excruciating on him. The 
thing that we need to realize, though, is how much Abraham has grown in his faith from the first time that we see him lie about <coughs> his sister to where he's at now. Abraham was at a point where he was not fully believing the promises of God to a point where he's willing to go and sacrifice his own child. Taking things into his own hands to try and save his bacon, to now he fully gets what God's about and he understands that God, more importantly, the thing that changes really in this story is that God was faithful and gave him a son that he promised him. It changed the whole dynamic of their relationship. He, even when Abraham had not been so faithful, God kept his promise. And Abraham is now showing his faith in return on that. So was Abraham willing to follow through? Abraham tells these two boys, you need to stay here. And what does he say? He says, Isaac and I are going to go to this place and we're going to go worship God. They don't even say anything about sacrifice. They say, why? Why do you think that happens? You think the two boys were trying to stop them? I mean, any normal person would, right? You're not going to go kill your kid. He doesn't tell them what's happening. He doesn't want him to understand. Now, there's, there's a few different interpretations on what was the state of mind of Abraham here. Uh, actually, I was with the heresies the other night, we got into a little bit of discussion about this. It was kind of neat because it was like, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. And it was back and forth. It's fine. Here's the thing. That's, that's what the Bible talks about, iron sharpening iron. It's, it's good to have discussion about this. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 says this, says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So some would say that Abraham knew God would raise Isaac from the dead if he sacrificed him. Okay? And I think it's just showing that after three days of walking and thinking and going through all of these different scenarios in his own head, worst case, yeah, if he had to kill him, God would probably bring him back. Because God did make the promise that his children would be raised through them. But the text in, in Genesis shows Abraham clearly knew that his son was coming back with him. Because he says, we'll be back with the boy. Um, could he have thought that, that there would be a resurrected Isaac? I guess. But that would also negate the next part of the text. Isaac questions where's the, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham clearly says that God is going to provide a lamb for himself. Was Abraham willing to kill his son? Yeah. He was willing to do what God asked him. He tied up his son. He had a knife ready. He was willing to go through it. I also think it's clear that he thinks that he that he thought God would come 
with a different waveform. And as much as Abraham tried to do so much of the things that he did in his life on his own, he was willing, and he had to be willing, to submit to God's way, even if it didn't make sense to him. Why would God have him kill the son? He said, would be the father of nations. Would he bring him back if he did? None of this really was the point of this. None of it was. The point was, was Abraham willing? Was he willing to give up that which he loved most? And the answer was yes. Because his faith had grown to that point. I get lots of questions from different people in, in Cornerstone, in the church, and they, they, they say, well, how come people don't understand this? We've talked about this a lot. People's journeys are all at different walks of their, of, they're all at different points of their faith walk. I know more than somebody in here. Somebody may know more than me. It, it, it's, we're at different positions in life. We learn by learning. We grow by knowledge, and we figure this stuff out, and we become closest. One of the reasons I always pray this when I pray is we to get us to draw closer to more, be more Christ-like. It's a process. Abraham finally is starting to get what God wants from him, and we've been going through it in the entire book of Genesis. It's faith and obedience, faith and obedience, faith and obedience. The entire book of Genesis is about that. The only way to get that kid off of that sacrificial thing was to be faithful and obedient. God would provide that sacrificial lamb for himself. He just wanted to know Abraham was willing. Our next point, as I said in the beginning of the story, that this foreshadows the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Abraham is about to give an offering to the Lord, his one and only son. Is, is that what God desires? The death of a boy, to, does that bless God in some way? It does not. <clears throat> The obedience of the faith does. Abraham looks over and he sees this ram caught in a thicket. And, and he, he realizes that God provided the sacrifice of his own. The, the more that we work to please God, and I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but I definitely do. The more that we work to, to try to sacrifice and please God and do all the things, the more that we realize that we can't. We're not capable. God had to give his own sacrifice because only his sacrifice would be perfect. The whole book of Leviticus is full of laws about sacrifices and offerings for this sin and that sin. We're not even there in the book yet. Um, but we've already seen that the world's been flooded and restarted because of the natural
natural tendencies of man to do evil. That, that is the natural instinct of man. Faith and obedience has been tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed. Pick up your Bible, open up a book, and within one page, some direction, you're going to find where somebody's tried it and somebody's failed. The whole book is full of it. The major theme of Genesis is faith and obedience. And, and when we realize our faith and our obedience isn't enough, that's when we as people begin to understand what grace is and how thankful we need to be because we have it. Jesus Christ, like the ram in the thicket, is the substitution for the death that we deserve. Only the ram could get Isaac off of that altar. And only God could provide that lamb. Think about had Abraham gone through with it. You'd have ended up with faith and obedience, but you'd have ended up with a dead child. Does that make anything better? Does that sacrifice make anything better? No, because it's not really God. The offering had to be made to satisfy God, to be a burnt offering for the sin, but only God could give himself a better offering. It's the same thing as when we flash forward about a couple thousand years. Laws are written, laws are broken, man fails, God does not. The story is the same. It's always the same story. Yet in this instance, 2,000 years later, God offers up his one and only son as a sacrifice. It's a lamb without blemish to be the one and only sacrifice for all sin. And it takes all of us off the altar that we all belong on. Our, sin, our sins are redeemed even though none of us are worthy of that. The Father loves the Son. Without question. But He's willing to sacrifice that Son for all of us. That's what love is all about. Substitutionary atonement. I say that word, I say that, that phrase a lot up here. And it's, it's, I don't think I've really explained it to others. Maybe some people that don't really understand it. But it literally, it's, it really means that someone steps in for the punishment that you deserve. Abraham deserved punishment for his lack of faith and, and the harm that it's still to this day causing. Does he get his punishment? No. God gave him a substitution. We deserve death for our sin and disobedience. And does God kill us as he rightly should? No. He sent his son to die on the cross in our place. He died for our sins. A perfect substitutionary atonement. And what better sacrifice could there be than the perfect son of the perfect God? You guys know that the Bible says that the wages of sin are death. 
when they use this, it, it's, it's kind of funny. It's one of the it's one of the most widely known verses in all of scripture. Pastors never ever use it, so I'm going to right now. John 3:16 and 17. Because it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Most people skip 17. This is important. Abraham had faith that God would provide for him, and he did. How many of us hold on to things we shouldn't and try so hard in our own power, in our own strength? Seriously, think about that, and then answer this question, how's that working for you? When you walk forward in faith, when you believe in him, and when you don't hold on to that stuff, it holds you back from that relationship with him. Only then can your world be saved through him. It's a personal decision. And you know what? God, at some point, there's people in here that may not know him, and God will, at some point, Make it happen. And he will make you understand. He will help you to see what you need to see. God will tell you to go to a mountain and he will show you um, where to go. The question is, will you have the faith to go? Will you hold back? Are you faithful with the little stuff? You know what, guys? The, the last three weeks, they've been hard. <coughs> They're three hard weeks. Um, God has really been showing us as, as Abraham grows and Abraham learns lessons, I'm hoping that we're learning these along with him because the question is where, where are we at? Where is our faith? Where would we be, are we willing to give up these things so that we can have that that relationship with God. He, he has given us his son, and some of us still hold back. And there's people, I guarantee you, in this room that look at it and go, ah, it's this old story of old people and an old book. And I hope that someday God, God enlightens you to what this is all about, because it is about grace and mercy and, and the sacrifice that you can't make on your own. And I hope that at some point some of you will see that what the gift is that's been given. I, I understand as people, you know, we, we have this mantra of like he who dies with the most toys wins or what, whatever it is. And so we, we strive and we climb and we try and get to wherever it is that we, we want to go. We, we like our comfort. And, and so quite frankly, some of us like our idols. question, I guess, is when you look at sacrifice, does God get your first fruits or does God get your leftovers? Does God have your faith or just what you think is enough to keep him in your good graces? It's kind of like that whole genie in the sky thing. You know, do we just, when we pray, do we just go, oh, God, I really need this? Or do we actually have a relationship with, with 
we talk with him, do we pray with him, do we read his word, do we get and draw closer to him through that? Do you, do you accept the sacrifice of the son for you, or do you keep yourself um, on the altar trying to make yourself the sacrifice? Any of you guys, I mean, I see people do it all the time. As you know, I don't really do altar calls, but I do pray that if you have questions or you don't understand or you need more understanding about what I'm talking about, um, I, I, I pray that this will be the day that you bow down and accept the work that Christ did for you on the cross because it, it's such an important transition of faith from what you believe in to what God's given you. And if you're still trying to do this stuff on your own, it, it's just, you're never going to be there. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to say, you'll never get there. You'll never get there on your own. If you have questions, please don't leave here without getting them answered. Um, It's, this is probably the most important thing that you'll ever discover in your life is how to have that faith in Christ and, and how it'll change your life. Because his, his grace and his mercy were poured out once and for all as a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. It, it's, it's not something you can fix. Now, a lot of people don't understand this, but you aren't worse. You're not less worthy. It was done for all of us. And it doesn't matter where you're at in life. Uh, I would love to pray with you if you need it. If you need help on how to accept Christ. Because um, the, the verse 17 is massively important. He did not send his son to condemn, but to save. And that that verse gets missed, missed so many times. And it's it's massively important because you have to understand what his grace does. You may feel bad in your sin. He doesn't care. He wants to save you. He wants to help you with that. Your faith in him is the reward. Your relationship with him is the reward. Everybody talks about, you know, well, great, I get to go to heaven. It's the difference between heaven and hell. That's really not what it is. How, how is your life now? Is it heaven or hell? Because if you're living in your own, you're living in hell. You, you may think it's great. It's, you, you know it's not. You know it's not. The bonus is that you get eternity with him. But the reward is the relationship. That's the reward. And it's faith and obedience. Last point, I'll make this one quick. Because you guys are all like, shut up, dude. Yeah. The genealogy of Milcah, Abraham's brother. Uh, it, it's mostly to show Abraham, and, and we'll read about this later, it's mostly to show that Abraham, when he was searching for a wife 
for Isaac that he wanted the wife to come from his land of birth, from his family, from that area. So they kind of go through this genealogy to show that Rebecca, who ends up being Isaac's wife, comes from that line. Okay. Um, that's that's really kind of the point of the genealogy. I don't want to go on too much more of that. So with that, guys, I'm going to be gone next week. Don't clap. Well, if you're going with me, clap. If you're not, then you're just me. <laughs> um, so, we're taking a vacation. Um, we're going to go see Kayla Girl at the Grandbabies. This does not mean that you can play hooky. <coughs> Luther has agreed to bring you a much better teacher teaching than any of my normal tribes that I bring here. So, he's promised that. So, um, show them honor by showing up if you can next week. That would be good. And Josh will be around if you have any needs. And I'll be available by phone if you guys need anything. Extra or whatever. Um, but I just pray that this week would, would bless you guys. Um, Kevin may need to work on some computer stuff. Luther, um, sorry, I'm going into a little bit of inside. Inside what? I can do it afterwards. Um, anyway, <laughs> let us pray. Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, for the opportunity to gather in your name, to worship you through song and through your word. And Lord, I pray that you would open hearts and minds, and that you would remove any barriers to faith and sanctification that is found in our lives, that your spirit that the scales will fall from our eyes and you give us new hearts and new minds to receive your word. And Lord, I pray that you would remove the enemy out of the way, that your word would shine forth, and that it would prepare us so that the gospel would be preached. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. So today I will be reading Psalm 2 from the ESV. So, and it starts with a question. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the hands from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have forgotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and be buried. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. 
The scripture starts with the question, says, why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. But the king set themselves against Yahweh. Why do we do this? This rage here is not simply a, a small anger and a slight against a friend or received from a friend. It is not the anger you feel if you stub your toe going through the house at night. This is a deep-seated anger. It's a rage that burns like a fire within the hearts of men. The word here actually has in mind a seed that is tumultuous, white-capping, driven by the wind, pushing everything before it that is upon it, crashing against the banks of the shore, and carrying away things back into its nest. It is a destructive rage. And God, in his word, says, why are the people raging and why do they plot in vain? Because he looks there and he's like, do you not know that I am a good God, that I am providing everything for you, that this creation is mine, and I have given it to you? But you see, starting back in about Genesis 3 or so, we fell in Adam. Because when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one thing that God had said to them, do not do, because when you do this, in that day you shall surely die. And Adam, Eve was deceived, and Adam listened to his wife, and they partook of the tree, and they fell, and they were separated from God, the giver of life, from whom all blessings flow. And on that day they died. They spiritually died. They were separated from the giver of life. And it took years and decades and even centuries for the culmination of that death to happen in physical death. But the very moment they eat, they were separated. They become dead in their sins. And they were angry at the God that had created them. And they passed this on to their posterity. From generation to generation, men were born as sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, and children of wrath, worthy and deserving of God's good judgment. But the people rage, and it's not just the people. See, this is the peons, those that make up the nation. This would be considered most times you and me. People that really don't have a stake in the game. We have very little influence upon history from our perspective. We are not nation builders, but we rage against the God of heaven. But see, it's also the princes. Because it says the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. See, this is a plot that is as old as man. It's a vain thing. It's not only vain because their machinations and their schemes will never come to fruition. It's a vain thing because who are you to question the God of heaven and to cast off his bonds? Because see, it's not just God that they are raging against. It's God's people. Because they can't pull God from heaven. 
sin. They can even anger God with their rebellion. But they cannot pull God down from heaven and hurt him. But they rage against his anointed, his king. And they want to break the chains of bondage. See, these chains of bondage that God has placed upon us are really not chains. They enslave us. Because as we read the New Testament, we know that who Christ has free is free indeed. We are slaves to something or someone. We're either slaves to sin and death, or we are slaves to righteousness. The Bible leaves us no other choice in the matter. We either serve ourselves and the devil, or we serve God. But make no mistake, there's a spot around in the world today that you can be neutral. You can be the Switzerland of spiritual things. But the myth of neutrality fails, both philosophically and biblically. You cannot straddle the fence. Gentlemen, if you have ever straddled the fence for very long, you will often find yourself in severe pain. But we've got to take one side or the other. And people against God. They deny him. I have read atheists online and heard them say it. There is no God and I hate him. There was a slide that I was going to have put up here that uh, I decided not to. But there was a, a protest and this young man probably in his 20s had a Poster board, oh, you know, no, no, sounding board, and he said, If Jesus returns, we will kill him again. And you want to talk about talking with a And they want to get rid of the cords that God has placed upon us that hold us together. Because you see, sin separates us, not only from God, but it often separates us from each other. See, great is the tie that binds. And what binds us together as believers is our faith in Jesus Christ and being united to Him. But when you walk away from God and you shake your fist at heaven, you separate yourself from Him. And from those who love him. And you walk in darkness. For everyone who doesn't walk in the light is still in darkness. And darkness separates. And it breeds fear. And it breeds anger. Because you don't know where you're going and you can't see. I grew up in West Virginia for a good part of my life. And I've been in coal mines. And if you go into a coal mine, if you've been into a cave or a cavern, and you turn off your light, it is dark. You can slap yourself in the face and not know your hand is moving. You can't see it. It's oppressive darkness. You can feel it bearing down upon you. But this is the darkness that separates us from God. It is the sinfulness of man. And we rage against God. And how do we try to remove the bonds that God has placed upon us? 
we try to hurt his church. We try to hurt his people. We try to set up ourselves as our own gods. We tout our autonomy. As we say that we will go our own way. Now you see, the Bible tells us there is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end is death. We make up vain philosophies that try to free us from the morality and the law of God. Because you see, all of you parents out here, have you ever held a child that wanted to go their own way? What do they do? They will stiffen up. They will ball their little fists. They will stamp their feet. They will hold their breath. They will cry. They will blow snot all over you in the house. Their face will turn red. And they will scream and cry. No, these are the laws of God's law and his laws that try to keep us from harm. But we make up mean philosophies, and we are like those little children. And the world and the pagan nations are like these little children. And say, we want what we want, and we want it right now. Forget God and his holiness. Forget God and his law. And evolution is one of these vain philosophies. And we are not going to get into the scientific side of evolution. We're not going to argue here today about that. But just before we go here, I am a young earth, as God spoke the earth into being. He created Adam and Eve as distinct, specific creatures that he breathed the breath of life into. And he created us, men and women, in his own image. But evolution comes along and it is a philosophical and pseudo-scientific underpinning to man's rebellion. If there is no God and we are not accountable to anything outside of our own selves, we set ourselves up as our own little gods and we can make our own rules. We can do what we want, when we want, and how we want. If we are nothing but pawns, Tom, that crawled up onto the shore and over the eons developed feet and hair and legs. If we are nothing bags but ugly bags and mostly water, if we are fizzing stardust, then what does any of us really matter? What we do today has no enduring or lasting when we try to throw the bombs and cords of God's decree for the family out the window we say you can marry who you want when you want, how you want you can love whoever you want, whenever you want however you want with giving no thought to what God has actually said about what we should do and what is best for us And we lie and we steal and we murder and we rage against the God of heaven. Because on my it's just before we go. Is God so intense in return? 
says, God holds things in derision. God sits in the heavens and he laughs. I have heard preachers say, God has a wonderful sense of humor. The Bible says that God laughs. This is not a jovial laugh. This is not watching Andy Graham and thinking that Barney Fife is the greatest comedian that has ever lived. This is a laugh. It's a mocking laugh. God looks upon the man and he says, Who do you think you are? Kings, who do you think you are? Romans 13 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority but from God. See, we have kings and princes and presidents and congressmen and congresswomen and the black robe black judges that think that they can decree what is best for us. And God looks down from heaven and he laughs. And he says, you have no authority unless I have given it to you. Proverbs 21, 1 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it where he wills. And Daniel 2, 21 says, He, Yahweh, removes kings and raises up kings. See, the king is the Lord's. Now, the king may not know it. He denies it. He suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And he wants to go his own way. He said, he takes counsel against God. But simply because you deny the truth does not make the truth untruthful. In Romans 9, we read about Pharaoh. If you go back into Exodus, you know, God's people were in bondage. They were slaves in Egypt. Moses, the deliverer, the prophet that God would raise up, you know, he was set out into the Nile in a basket, and Pharaoh's daughter got him out and found him in the door while she raised him up. Moses killed an Egyptian when he was an adult, he fled into the wilderness, and he became a shepherd, and he lived in Midian, and he married, and then God, something you know, appeared in a burning bush, and Moses went up, and God said, Moses, you're going back to Egypt. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to tell Pharaoh, the most powerful king on earth at that time, that he is going to let my people go. And what did God say at the same time? He said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, see, you may think that's unfair. You may say, how can God harden someone's heart and still judge them? But if you read on into Exodus, there is a thing that some theologians like to call compatibilism. There's man's will, there's God's will. They're concurrent. They're running along the same tracks at the same time. And if you read on over into Exodus, you will read where God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But how did this happen? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, they both hardened his heart. God used the circumstances and the existing sin that was already in Pharaoh's heart. He let Pharaoh, by his own, by God's decree and his ordination, say, there it is, Pharaoh. You can have what you want. I'm going to turn you over to the rest of the Bible. And in Romans 9, Paul even explains this further, and he says, this was the reason that Pharaoh was raised up to display God's power and his glory. 
And Paul even says, who are you to answer back to God? It is God who has mercy on you. He who has mercy. But the king is the Lord. When the king can lift him or not. And like the little child, they stiffen up and they rage and they cry and they skew them. And we mock the God of heaven. And yet God laughs. In Isaiah 40 and 21. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He, it's Yahweh who sits above the circle of the earth. And it's in heaven, or like grasshoppers. In verse 23, He brings the princes to nothing. And he makes the judges of the earth as useless. Can you imagine a grasshopper? Now, we get millions of grasshoppers. We have a swarm, and we have famine and pestilence and disease and all that comes with it. But can you imagine a single grasshopper looking up at one of us and raging against us? How much greater is the God of heaven above us than we are above? You see, the grasshopper and humans are both created creatures contingent upon God for everything that we have. But God is uncreated. He is the first cause of all things. He says, the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. They amount to nothing in and of themselves. And God holds them in the vision. And then God speaks to them in his wrath. Beloved, do you know that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? It is a terrifying thing to rebel against the righteous judge. And it doesn't say that God shouts. Say that God kicks his feet and wonders what is going to happen. But God speaks in his wrath. And he terrifies them in his fury. And he says, despite your rage, despite your schemes, despite your plotting, despite all that you have in your finite, tiny little minds and in your darkened hearts, he says, I have set my king on Zion. On my holy hill. So you see, it was the plan from the beginning that Yahweh, the triune God, would redeem man. Because you see, Jesus, as he is named, the eternal second person of the Trinity, from time immortal, from even before the foundations of the world. We mentioned the fall earlier in Genesis 3. You go down to Genesis 3.15. We have the promise of a redeemer. Well, God, speaking to the woman, he said, there will be enmity, there will be hatred and strife between your seed and the seed of the serpent. He said, the serpent, the seed of the serpent will strike his heel, but your seed will crush his head. And we have the proto-evangelium, the very first promise of the 
Redeemer and the restoration of God's creation. And God sets his king upon the throne. Now this was, like I said, remember historically, this was speaking of David. Who was David? He was the youngest son of Jesse who was behind, uh, way out in the sheepfold. No one even thought of him when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel. Completely forgot about him. And Samuel was looking at all the sons of Jesse and he's like, no, 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 no. And after I think seven of them, he turns to Jesse, do you not have any more sons? Because God told me to come here and take your son and anoint him. He's like, yeah, I have my youngest son. He's, he's back with the sheep. And Sarah said, bring him to me. And Sarah saw him, and he anointed him as king. Now David was king from that moment, but his kingdom, his reign, took years to culminate. But he was anointed that day. And we read on, it says, I will tell of the decree. This is the king, the anointed one, speaking now. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Now why did God have to set his king, his son, his only begotten son, upon the throne? Because remember, we just mentioned a moment ago, that David, the man after God's own heart. But who here knows what David did? He's a lying, murdering adulterer who had multitudes of family problems. But he was still God's king and only to believe his people. And God made a promise to David. In 1 Chronicles 17, 10, God speaking to David, he said, you're not going to build me a house, but I, Yahweh, am going to build you a house. And he said, your son will sit upon the throne forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And God said, I will raise up your offspring after you. One of your own sons, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, who shall give me a son. Speaking of Solomon in the near future, and speaking of Christ in fulfillment. So you see, all these kings, from David to Solomon to Jehoshaphat to Uzziah to Hezekiah to Josiah to Manasseh to Jehoiada, all the way down to the end of the kingdom of Judah when Babylon destroyed the city and the Holy Temple. The good kings and the bad kings, every one of them failed. The good ones failed. The bad ones failed worse, but they all failed. They failed to be the king that the people needed. They failed to be the king that reigned in perfect righteousness, who perfectly fulfilled the law before God the Father. They failed. And we needed a king who would not fail. We needed a king who could stand before God and rule and reign as one who had kept the law and that led the people who had triumphed over all the nations that were raging 
against him. And we know some people say, you cannot take this all and apply it to Jesus. I think it's different because I am just following the very words of the apostles. In Acts 4 and 37, no, 4, 25 and 26. Thank you, Jennifer. It says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius <coughs> along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Sitting in Spartan where God said that this song right here is about Jesus Christ. It's about the only begotten Son of the Father. We read in John 1.14. And we can back up to John 1.1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you go down to John 1.14, about through 18, it says, that God gave his only begotten. And it mirrors John 3.16. As we turn to John, which is actually one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. We go to John 3.16, it says, And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in 1 John 4.9, John again speaks of the only begotten Son. Of the Father. There is no one else in all of history that fits this description. There's no one else that we can look to. There is no one else who did what the king needed to do. And we know that Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, fulfilled everything that he needed to do as the anointed king. It says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your promise, your possession. Jesus is the inheritor of all things. You go back to Abraham. God promised Abraham this section of land in the Middle East called the Promised Land. And one of the covenant promises that is found in the Abrahamic covenant is that through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the seed. Galatians 3, Paul talks about it. He said, when God made the promise to Abraham, he did not say, and to seed, but to seed. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham that fulfills all the promises. 
And as the fulfillment of all the promises, he is also the inheritor of all things. When God the Father said, ask, and it is all yours. And it is all his. But do you notice the similarity between these words and words that we will read later? Some probably almost a thousand years from when this psalm was written. Who here is familiar with the temptation of Christ in the wilderness? You know one of the things that Satan did? He always used scripture when he was tempting Christ. Now he twisted it, he mangled it, he misapplied it, but he used God's word against God's son. And one of the uh, temptations was said, just simply bow down before me and worship me and I will give you all the nations. How often does Satan do that to us? How often does he promise things that he can never provide? How often does he twist God's word to put fear into your heart where you would doubt God? Where you would doubt your salvation, where you would doubt the love of Christ and the love of the Father that is found in Christ. How often does the world come to us and say, This is the way it is? You can do what you want, and it twists God's word. How often do we lose our contentment because we seek after things that God has never promised? But Satan came to Jesus Christ and he said, if you'll just worship me, you can have it all. What did Jesus do? He went back to the word and he said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. He said, depart from me, Satan. You see, when Satan twists God's word, we only have to go back to it and read it as it is. And proclaim it and stand upon it as our soul is bound to root faith. But the tricks of Satan are the same today as they were before. He lied all the way back in the garden. He said, Has God really said? What was he doing there? He was casting doubt upon what God had actually said. So if you doubt your salvation, what has God said? If you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart, you will be saved. Now there is a certain amount of real presuppositional data that you have to believe. You have to know who Christ is. You have to be told what he has done. Because just a few verses later, Paul says that how can they believe in him who have not heard? How can they hear us in sand unless we sand? He says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we have to stand upon the scriptures, upon the word of God. He said, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. How much do we miss portraying Jesus like in the world? Jesus loves you. That is not untrue. Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. That is partly true. Because that plan for your life 
for the Christian, for the believer, for the one that is in Christ, you can't hold suffering, wisdom, suffering, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That wonderful plan for your life, read Hebrews 11 and see the Hall of Fame of Faith. They were one of sudden cutting two desperate naked and beaten and killed all over special wild animals. That does not match up with your best life now. Because if this is your best life now, eternity does not hold much promise. We are looking forward to the full consummation of the kingdom of the Son of God. But the kingdom is here now, and it's spreading. It's being proclaimed. It is not fully consummated yet. And how do we live with the Jesus? He's just a loving big brother that will give you whatever you want, whenever you want. You see, that's one of the plots and schemes that is brought into the church by the world. And very often, these plots and schemes will wear clerical collars or priestly robes or stand behind a microphone. Who here remembers the Jesus Seminar? Oh, there's one, somebody here somewhere. I don't know if you like it, if you do, I'm sorry. Okay, John Dominic Cross, and they were ultra liberal priests, and they, they had a conference, and they all sat around, and they had colored meetings. And they said, let's read the New Testament, let's read the Gospels, and let's decide what Jesus actually said. So they would read words that Jesus was supposed to have said. They had a bead that said, okay, he said that, definitely. They had another colored bead that said, he might have said that. Another color B, he probably didn't say that, and another color B that would say he definitely did not say that. By the time they got done, the four Gospels were about as thick as a receipt from Safeway. They had decided what God had actually said by casting lots. And people believed that. We have liberal theologians that will come around and say, it is not. And some of these, John Dominic Cross was one, he said, Jesus didn't actually rise bodily from the dead. He was taken to the cross cast into the valley, and he was eaten by dogs. Yeah, you can look them up. They're funny people. Not funny, ha ha. But we have these schemes that come in and twist God's word and twist his testimony to us. And then we portray this meek and mild Jesus, who is meek and mild. What does it say about him right here? Those that are raging against him, he is going to break with a rod of iron. He is going to come against the unbelieving world in judgment. If you read Romans 1, it says the wrath of God is now presently being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In Romans 1, 18 and 19, somewhere down in there. Now but there's coming a day when it is going to be poured out on unbelieving humanity. He's going to dash them in pieces. And now we come to the end of the song. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. I've warned you, I have told you, I have set my king upon the hill. I have given him the rod of judgment, and this is what's going to happen. Be wise. What is wisdom? 
fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you fear God? Do you have a holy reverence for his anointed king? And be Lord, O Lord of the earth, and serve the Lord with fear. And we do not. If you are a child of God and you have repented and you have been granted faith and you have come to Him and your sins have been forgiven, you do not have to fear Him as a judge. Now, there are times, to be perfectly honest, that I do fear this sanctification process. It can be quite painful. It's a likening in John, the Gospel of John, to turning. Where he cuts off land so that you would bear more fruit. Sanctification is likely to the gold being sent through the furnace where the dross comes to the top and is squeezed off, and you are purified through trials and temptations. That doesn't sound fun, and I I fear that in my flesh, and I, we should rejoice in that in our spirit because God loves us and Hebrews tells us those whom he loves he disciplines but it is a loving discipline as a parent it is not the discipline of the rod of iron that he is going to bring against those who rage against him just be wise just be wise princes and peons because remember we, at the beginning of the song the peons are raging and they are scheming and the princes are counseling together. Just be wise. Just come to him. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, it says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. See, because there's really no better time now than to kiss the Son. To bow your knee before him. To repent as God has commanded all men everywhere. You must repent. Jesus himself said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And see, the fearful thing is that it's not just a human, earthly, temporal, time-bound judgment that is coming upon us. It is an eternal judgment from the hand of God. Because Jesus said, I am coming back to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. He will judge you as either being in him and saved and going to your reward, or you will be judged as being outside of him, where you will also get a reward, but the reward is not something that you particularly like. Because it is a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, for the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. So today, if you sit here and you hear God's word and you have heard of his judgment, and you have heard about his kingdom, and you have sinned against the thrice holy God of heaven, and you have raged in your heart against the goodness of God, against the love that is found in Christ Jesus, if you are like that toddler that continues to hold your fist and scream and cry 
and say, I want to go my own way, knowing that that way ends in death. It is not my warning that counsels anything. It's the warning that comes from God's word, from his mouth. You can take what I say or leave it. But God's word is said that there is coming a day of judgment and you will face it. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And see, we don't know how many more heartbeats we are allowed, do we? How many, how many more heartbeats do we have? How many more breaths are we going to take? Do you not know that it is simply by the grace of God that you draw your next breath? And the, the grace of God is meant, and the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, to a change of mind from a turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Do you not know that it's grace that you walk in here today, that your eyes open this morning, that you'll go to sleep tonight, that you'll wake up tomorrow? That God has given you good things whether you acknowledge him or not? Because a good gift is a good gift whether you use it for evil or for God's glory. So as Paul has said in the New Testament, I beseech you, brethren, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, to come to Christ, the maker of your soul, the God of heaven. Before his wrath is quickly kindled and you perish in the way, before you stand before him. And he says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I have never known you. He says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who trust in him. He says in Matthew 28, 11, 28, It's come to me, all of you who are heavy, all of you who are weary, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come and have rest in me. He says, sit before me and learn of me. And you see, when Christ takes our hearts and gives us a new heart, we're not free to do whatever we want. We are not suddenly autonomous creatures that can go our own way at that point. He takes the yoke of sin and the yoke of death, and he removes it from us, and he puts his yoke upon us, and he becomes his slave. So ladies and gentlemen, I want to make the last point before we close very here. In case I have misspoken, been misunderstood, lost my way in my ramblings in before you today, that there is a God, and He sits in the heavens, that you are a sinner who are outside of Christ, that you will face judgment one day. But God gave His only Son. Romans 5 and 8. That God has committed his love towards us. That while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Christ died as the penalty of our sins. Christ died his substitutionary atonement so that you would not have to pay for your sins. Because the gospel is this, that Christ came, he was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life before God and before man. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, he rose again for our sins and for our justification. So, beloved, I pray that if you do not know today that you will come to him, that you will repent and believe. Let us pray. Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us. We thank you that your word is true. And it is your word proclaimed that leads to faith. Father, we love you and we praise you. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that you would grant them faith and repentance. Father, that you would have mercy upon them. That you would give them a new heart. Adopt them into your family. And explain them with the righteousness of Christ. And God, for those here that do know you, God, that you would strengthen us, that you would sacrifice us, that you would purify us, and Lord, that you would prepare us to be your bride without spot and wrinkle, that you are coming back again. Lord, that we would live daily in repentance, for we love you, Lord, and we praise you. Now, God, keep us, watch over us. That the hand, the work of our hands and of our feet be blessed, that we may glorify you in all our works. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I think it is time that we are going to repent in the Lord's Supper. I'm sorry, I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to schedules. Well, not, so I don't really know the order of things. I don't know if you sing another song. Uh,